This morning's reading is taken from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. It can be found on the Church Bibles on page 1033. Luke 5, verse 27. Jesus calls Levi and eats with the sinners. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. Thanks, Tony. Morning, all. I've got the unenviable task of bringing us in before the football. Um, but we're, we're in the middle of a short summer series looking at Jesus' friends. Who did he spend time with? Who did he hang out with and why? And if we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus and do what Jesus did, we probably want to work out who his friends were and what we can learn from them. And perhaps you've been like me, you've been around the church, you've been in this church, you've been around a church or churchy people for years. It's still really easy to forget the outrageous stuff in the Gospels and how Jesus was perceived by churchy people. Uh, it's, it's humbling sometimes and it acts as a kind of a sharpening stone for us. So let's come with humble hearts this morning. We, we'll, we'll come to the unavoidable conclusion that uh, Jesus was known and loved by a cross-section of society, mainly by the everyday man or woman in the street, definitely by the, the poor and the disadvantaged, the rejected, but also by some of the political and the religious leadership, not not, not universally hated by them, but the people that had a problem with Jesus were mainly the religious leadership of the day. Why is that? What can we learn from his friends? So this morning we're focusing on the outcast, the, those on the edges, the fringes. Why did Jesus choose to spend time with people on the edges? Why did he do that? Was it because that somehow ancient scripture had told him that was the right thing to do? Was it because he had genuine sympathy for people who were poor or weak in some kind of way? Or was it because he genuinely enjoyed it? Was it because he genuinely loved spending time with people of all types and valued their friendship? Um, I pray today that you and I both leave believing that Jesus enjoyed and loved spending time with people on the fringes, the re- rejects, the outcasts, the misfits. 
Um, Jesus wasn't somehow drawn to those spotlight people, the ones that sparkle and shine and just have natural gift. He was quite good at looking past them. He actually chose to spend time with the dull and the people on the back rows, the people that didn't stand out. Um, I wonder if you've heard it said, someone said to me once, uh, when I, maybe when we were getting married and planning a, a, you know, a house together, he said, you know, keep, keep nothing in your house that isn't useful or beautiful. And I, I don't walk around my house these days thinking uh, that everything there is useful or beautiful. There's quite a lot of stuff that's broken. Um, children do that to you. It's, and it's a nice saying, you know, keep nothing that isn't useful or beautiful. Um, but it fuels our throwaway culture, doesn't it? It really fuels our throwaway culture. You know, maybe when something gets old or it loses its beauty or it uses its, loses its usefulness, um, we chuck it out. And so uh, several years ago, my wife bought me this uh, small teapot. She was trying to get out of the throwaway culture of using tea bags. I didn't really see this as particularly important in the grand scheme of things. Um, but it's a nice teapot. I actually was quite taken with it. It's not fussy, it's not practical, small, one cup, big cup, removable strainer for leaf tea. Some of you are switching off already. Some of you are going, tell me more, this is interesting. Um, but I still use that thing multiple times a day. Um, but the use takes its toll, doesn't it? And if you don't look after something, you don't clean it. I'm not the best cleaner of teapots. Um, Recently, the lid came loose, one of the rivets failed, and then, uh, you know, I thought about fixing it, but then the strainer was clogged, and, you know, it, wasn't, it was producing weak tea, there's nothing worse if you're British than weak tea, um, and I was pretty frustrated with it, and I tried to put it in a dishwasher, it didn't fix it, and I tried, uh, you know, I tried vinegar and bicarb, I looked up a few internet hacks, some of you are going, why is that an internet hack, my mum taught me that, I, I, you know, my mum didn't tell me that, I looked it up on the internet, and it still didn't work, this teapot was still useless. Um, so I was going to chuck it out and buy another one until, A, I realised that they were, my wife had bought me quite a nice one. They were 20-something quid. I thought, OK, I'm not going to spend that much money on a teapot. And I thought, actually, I should know how to fix something. So I got my rivet gun out and I re-riveted the lid and I got my Dremel out. I got the flexible attachment. I got the, the wire brush attachment. And I spent 45 minutes. Me, we did battle. But this teapot came out clean, and not pretty, it was never pretty, but it came out useful again. And I had a brilliant cup of tea from that thing, and I thought, Do you know what, that has taught me a lesson, right? But it's easy, isn't it, to, you know, okay, lighthearted, but it's easy to lose sight of the value of something just because it gets clogged up with life. It's easy to lose sight of the value of someone because they get clogged up with life. And don't we all sometimes? Maybe that stuff that just happens to us. Maybe it's stuff that we actively make a bad decision. Maybe it's an accidental decision that somehow we just get stuck with, but we stay clogged. We read in Luke's Gospel in chapter 8 that the, the 12 travelled around with Jesus, but not just the 12. Also some women who've been cured of evil spirits and diseases, uh, Mary had seven demons cast out of her, Joanna, um, the manager of Herod's household, uh, the wife of Chizor, the manager of Herod's household, a bunch of other women, the broken men and women, misfits, 
Some were fishermen, ruffians. We'll talk about them in a couple of weeks. Judas, we're not quite sure what he did, but he, never, he still was putting his hand into the pot and taking the money out even when he was one of the 12. Matthew, the tax collector, often referred to as Levi. Um, disreputable chap. And uh, disreputable men and women didn't just bump into Jesus and then go their separate ways. They stayed with him and they followed him and they gave their lives to him. Why? Why did they do that? And I believe fundamentally it's because Jesus saw in them what I saw in that teapot. Something that had value and purpose. And he loved drawing it out of them. And they loved and were grateful for his face in them. They were a motley crew. Not all of them poor and outcast, not all of them ruffians, but some clearly had been troubled people and come to a place of restoration. Today we focus on the tax collector. Tony read to us about Levi, the tax collector, and we heard it this morning that Jesus went out and he saw the tax collector in his booth and he said, follow me. And Levi dropped everything and got up and left it behind and followed him. So, quick one. Who are the tax collectors? Why were they outcasts? Some of you go, I know this, I went to Sunday school. Bear with those that don't. So, uh, the Romans occupied Israel. If you've watched the life of Brian, I forgive you. If the Romans occupied Israel as as a foreign power, they subjugated them to the Roman laws, Roman policies, Roman practices. And taxation was one of them. And uh, the Roman army were there, but they didn't do that themselves. They, they got the, the Jewish people who knew the Jewish people and knew how to get the best and the worst out of the Jewish people and had them tax the Jewish people with Roman practices. So these tax collectors were Jewish people who would then go amongst their own people and start to tax the imports, the exports, the bridges, the roads, the towns, anything they could you less, anyone. Um, the, the, typically, the tax collectors weren't liked. They weren't trusted. And they grew to develop these um, un, unorthodox or unethical uh, side hustles. They might hassle you in the street. You might get uh, uh, roughed over by one of them just after you know, you, you've been done by another one for different taxes. They might be skimming off the top. These people were typically despised. And, you know, the rabbis taught that the tax collectors were disqualified witnesses in court. They were, they were outcasts. They were disgraces to their family. They weren't allowed to exchange their money that they taxed at the temple treasury. Um, and the rabbis even, they, they even considered it lawful, I've read, to lie in almost any conceivable way to avoid being taxed. So, as a result, very few people would take that job. Uh, they, they would only take it if they were a lowlife, they were some kind of criminal. Uh, some historians called them scum, referred to as scum. So when we imagine Jesus seeing this tax collector and stopping, and this tax collector, wouldn't, that wouldn't have been the first time he'd seen Jesus. He'd have seen what was going on. He'd have, Jesus would have had some kind of contact with him before. This wasn't an instant follow me. He would have seen the way Jesus lived and loved. And when Jesus said, follow me, that guy was ready. He knew he'd had enough of the life that he'd lived to that point, and he, he was ready. 
But imagine Jesus inviting that man and his friends to follow him. And then that man saying, come to my house. Let's celebrate. Maybe we should be a little easier on the Pharisees who sat there and muttered and said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with these people? It's okay that he ministers on the street. It's all right to hand out tracts and offer to pray for people. But going back to their house and sharing a glass of wine and, and laughing at their jokes and getting involved in their life, that's just not we ha- what we had you down for. We don't understand. To them, holiness meant separation. It meant being different, being other, being protected. And yet Jesus was involved and engaged at their place with the dodgy friends, not just having sympathy for sinners, but spending time with them. And of course Jesus saw the traitor. Of course he saw the liar. Of course he saw the extortion. Of course he saw the the fast buck. But he saw the value underneath and he saw the child of God created in the image of of the Father underneath. And he went deeper and he didn't just say, I want this man to follow me. He said, I want this man to represent me. Because when you read in in Matthew's gospel, uh, in chapter 9, the the parallel story where the tax collector is called and and the the tax collector is referred to as Matthew in that story, um, not Levi, but most scholars believe they're the one and the same. And whether that's correct or not, Matthew, the tax collector, went on not only to have some part in writing or collating Matthew's gospel, but, but not only to be one of the 12, but also to be one of the 12 apostles. Uh, church history has that he, he went to Ethiopia and ministered for decades um, and, and perhaps was martyred, we don't know. But his life was, was transformed and filled with significance and not just through a dinner party but, but through meeting and sharing life with Jesus. So let's go back to that, that banquet of gratefulness that Levi threw. It was, a, it was a grateful response. I've, I've, been, I've been accepted. I've been forgiven. I want to do something. I want to invite my friends. That's a great thing. That's a, when God draws that out of the heart of a sinner to say thank you. Thank you. I worship you. Thank you for seeing something in me that I was in danger of losing. Thank you, God. Praise you. I want to give my life to you. I want to, I want to serve you. That's a great thing. And, and Levi that we read about today wasn't the only one. You go into to Luke 7, you, re, you read about the sinful woman. Jesus was at another dinner party with a Pharisee. And the, the woman who hears he's there, she comes and she starts crying. She's, she's weeping all over him. She's, she's washing his feet with her tears and her hair. She's pouring perfume over him. And it's really close and personal. And the Pharisee is, is again, challenged by the closeness and he says to himself he thinks to himself if if Jesus only knew what kind of outcast this was what kind of sinner this was he wouldn't want anything to do with this person 
And Jesus perceives his thoughts. And he could at that moment have, have embarrassed the woman quite, quite significantly and, and highlighted all the things she's done. And actually, he puts the spotlight on the Pharisee and says, do you see, since I came, you didn't give me, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't give me perfume. You didn't give me water. She has. The sinner has. And he asked him a story. He said, there's a money lender that, sent, that lends 500 denarii to one man and 50 denarii to another. And neither of them have got the money to pay back. Neither of them. You know, often we think we have this, you know, accidental, we know it's not really that we're massively different to other people, but we, but we put a spotlight on someone who's very clearly an outcast out there who owes 500 denarii. And we may only owe 50. And Jesus says to the Pharisee, he says, who, who loved him more? And, and the Pharisee says, well, probably the one that that was forgiven more. And Jesus said, exactly. Sometimes we need to remember the depth that we have been forgiven. And maybe the way we, li- we look at who is an outcast and who isn't. We, we all have that, the capacity to, to be outcast. Maybe, maybe it's not just the sinful woman that's the problem. Maybe she's just the one that got caught. Maybe she's just the one that got put in the spotlight. None of us could really pay, pay God back, could we? If you haven't read the Gospels in a while, go and do a bit of rereading because they're outrageous. Sometimes just rereading the same piece and putting yourself in that situation and think, wow, Jesus was so countercultural. And before we, um, we maybe imagine that, uh, that those outcasts that Jesus spent time with and connected with and, and gently restored were somehow easily restored on that one day, we know in our own lives it's not really like that. You know, people that go through uh, dreadful things or, ha- or make bad decisions often need patience and time and courage to walk alongside them just as God walked alongside us with our restoration. 2 Samuel 14, verse 14, has been a password of mine on my computer for some time. Um, not now, obviously. <laughs> God devises ways that the banished may not remain estranged from him. God goes out on the hunt. God's the rescuer. He's not just the creator. He doesn't just know how to make good things and then tell you off when you get broken and bust. He knows how to rescue. He knows how to redeem. He knows how to restore. And he loves to do those things. Yes, it's God's work, but he uses us to do that work too. We equally need patience, courage, faith. Looking at the clock. I wonder if you watch the repair shop. Who watches the repair shop? Who likes the repair shop? Yeah, it's definitely one of my uh, guilty pleasures. It's not really a guilty pleasure, it's just a pleasure. 
watching craftsmen and women who just take joy in putting old, precious, but damaged and dull things back together. I love watching that. I love watching the smiles on the, at the end and sometimes the tears. And this is the tale of two teapots, friends, because one of the recent repair shops that, that I watched, there was an Iraqi man and, uh, and his wife, and they'd had to flee uh, 50 years ago under persecution, and they brought with them a samovar, uh, one of the uh, Russian or Persian uh, water, water heaters, teapots. And this thing was bust, honestly. They were, it wasn't holding the ash anymore. The knobs had fallen off. It, was, it looked like it had been made out of clay. It was dented, useless, not working. And uh, he told a story. He said that you know, before they'd had to flee you know, at, the, at a house moving, his, his uncle had fallen over with it and put the dent in it. And um, he just loved to see it like working again, if possible. And uh, uh, the silversmith polished it up remade the catch, remade the, the, the carpenter, remade the knobs, the, the dials, got this thing working again. Beautiful silver polished item, still with this dent in it. Because the, the, the guy said, I, I really would love to keep the dent. Because it's a memory for me of, 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 uh, of a family moment that I don't want to forget. And actually... For most of us, when God restores us and puts us back together, we have those moments, don't we, of remembering how we used to be. And God never completely removes all of the, the memories of the dents or the dents. Sometimes he, he, he uses those, those mistakes or those paths we took as, as maybe a way to, to help others. When God restores you, he takes away the shame but he doesn't always take away that, that dent because other people have those dents, but they carry the shame and they need, to, they need restoring too. So as we, as we come into land, um, let's thank God we don't serve a throwaway God. We serve a God who rescues, actively rescues, seeks out the broken. He redeems, he pays the price that we couldn't pay and he restores he takes joy as a master craftsman to put things back the way he always saw them in the beginning. And maybe you don't feel worthy of restoration. Maybe you're having someone, family, friend come to mind who you know desperately needs restoration. And maybe you've lost faith or lost belief that God could or would. And this morning we just need to be reminded of that. Reminded of God's heart for the lost and the banished and the outcast. Because we're not really that different, are we? And a little question. When was the last time someone accused you of hanging around with gluttons and drunkards and sinners? And if it was a while since anyone accused you or me of that. Is that a problem? Might we have become a little pharisaical? 
would it be good to, to pray briefly as we come into land? Father, we, we thank you that you're a God who takes such care in restoring and we come to you as people that never stop needing that restoration. And Father, whether we come to you with regret that you do not want us to hold and we've just put that on your altar knowing we cannot, we cannot fix that regret. Lord, would you take it? Would you redeem and restore? Father, maybe we come to you with others on, on our hearts that are really just, we know they're in need of coming home or, or being restored and there just doesn't seem to be a way. Would you create a way, Father? Would you make a way? You are the God that devises ways to that the banished may not remain estranged from you. Would you draw them home? We lift them to you, Father. And Father, when our hearts have been hard and scared of being associated with people who are broken, in case somehow we were drawn in or we were mistaken for being sinful ourselves, would you forgive us our self-righteousness, Father? Would you show us those around us who just need us to go where they feel safe? and get stuck in to their lives and engage with them where they are, whatever that means and brings. And as we come to communion, Father, we, we just prepare our hearts to you, not, not perfect in ourselves, but, but thank you that Christ is, the, is our redeemer, our restorer, our rescuer. We thank you, Lord God.